Hey guys, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Wes. I'm Shiv, and we are very excited to have Professor Robert Sapolsky joining us here today. One of the preeminent neurobiologists in this world, Robert Sapolsky is a professor at Stanford University where he holds joint appointments in the biological sciences, neurology and neurological sciences, and neurosurgery departments. As being raised in Brooklyn, he graduated summa cum laude from Harvard University with a bachelor's in biological anthropology and later went on to get his PhD from Rockefeller University in neuroendocrinology. He is the recipient of numerous awards, including the prestigious MacArthur Fellowship Genius Grant in 1987 and the National Science Foundation Presidential Young Investigator Award. For decades, he has been traveling to Africa every year to observe a group of baboons as part of his work on stress and gene degeneration. So thank you so much for joining us, Robert. One of the most interesting things that we've heard from other speakers on our show is a concept called that we like to call inflection points, uh, points where people realize they had to pivot, make a change, either in their personal or professional life. Um, so we were wondering if you could share maybe one or two pivot points with us. Let's see. I guess maybe I've had two key ones. Um, probably the most important one was when I was eight. And up until then, my main goal in life was to grow up and be a gorilla. And at age eight, I came to terms with the fact that that was not going to happen. So I decided I was going to study primates out in the wild instead. Um, The other was in my freshman year in college in that I went off to study with this guy who was like the king of primate field research. And I had been like sending him fan letters since I was in middle school kind of thing. And my first semester there, I was all set on taking like everything he was teaching. And he had a mild heart attack. Um, It was very mild. He lived another 30 years. He was fine. Um, But he canceled all his classes. And I suddenly had a whole bunch to fill in. So somewhat on a whim, I took an introductory neuroscience class and was totally blown away by it. And I had this crisis of an inflection point of, okay, am I going to study behavior out in the wild in the context of ecology, evolution, or am I going to study behavior and its brain bases in the lab? And am I going to like wear hiking shoes for the rest of my life or a lab coat? Um, So the inflection point did not resolve in the sense that I've been sort of going back and forth between the two ever since. And certainly in your work, you definitely get to put on both of those hats, so to speak. Um, So we were wondering if we could um, talk to you a little bit about your time in Africa, about your field research and some of the the most um, impactful experiences you've had from that. Well, what I've done, as you mentioned, is go back to the same population of baboons every year. Baboons, they live in like open savanna grasslands. They live in these troops of 50, 100 animals or so. Um, And this is in a national park in East Africa. And what I study, sort of the big theme to my work is the effects of stress on health lab work, the effects of stress on the brain. Um, And the field work was trying to understand if you're a baboon, what does your social rank, what does your patterns of social affiliation, what does your personality um, have to do with who's got the high blood pressure and who's got the elevated stress hormone levels and who's gotten the rotten physiology. Um, Baboons are perfect for studying that. Um, in terms of understanding humans, because this is a great ecosystem for them. They live in these big troops, so the predators don't hassle them much. Their kids all survive, and they only have to work about three hours a day for their calories foraging. What that means is they've got nine hours of free time every day to be unbelievably crappy to each other. (laughs) 
they're just like us. None of us get ulcers because we're having to like go out and forage for our calories. We've got enough spare time to generate psychological stress, which is all they do nine hours a day. And they're brilliant at it. So they're perfect for studying the effects of psychosocial stress on health. Now, speaking of stress, you've done a lot of your research into stress. And uh, in the media at school and often in the workplace, there's always conversations on how people, or especially humans, how we can handle and better uh, deal with stress. But there's not many conversations on how maybe to reduce the stressors in our life. Do you think that is a productive type of conversation or do you think there needs to be a change in how we talk? Um, well, as long as it's not sort of sitting around, you know, the dinner table in the dorm each night where the main point is who's got like more papers due how soon and hasn't done any work in preparation and hasn't slept and how many days if it's, if it's just sort of ritualistic complaining like that, it doesn't accomplish a whole lot. Um, in terms of like controlling stress though, um, it's easy to come up with what the main sort of pointers are in terms of psychological stress and controlling it. And it's unbelievably difficult for people, including me to actually go and implement it. Um, basically for the same external misery, uh, you're more likely to be stressed, to have a stress response, to be at risk of a stress-related disease. If you feel like you have no control over what's going on, if you feel like you have no predictive information as to when it's coming, how bad is it going to be, how long is it going to last, if you feel like you have no outlets for the frustration being caused by the stressor, and if you don't have social support. And this is not just like fuzzy, warm-hearted kumbaya stuff. I mean, literally, you take a lab rat who gets a shock every now and then, and what do you know, it has a massive stress response. And if before each shock, 10 seconds before, a little warning light comes on, blood pressure doesn't go up. It doesn't have a stress response. It's got predictive information sense of control. All of those are enormously powerful. Uh, probably the most powerful one is the social affiliation stuff. Um, and of course, we all have a lot of trouble sort of stopping ourselves in our 24-7 of whatever craziness we're caught up with and saying, this is time to make a change here. I, I kind of want to go back to um, your, your time in Africa and maybe the stress that that Im impacted you with. Um, it sounds like you wanted to be a researcher, um, you know, with the prospect of field work as being something you were interested in since you were a young child. Um, but was there any kind of difficulties you had in adjusting and like kind of splitting your time between back in the States and over there? Um, and maybe any kind of like culture shocks or many or other observations, since observation is what you do, maybe other observations you gained from that experience more generally? Yeah, basically, I was totally unprepared. Um, at the time I went off to Africa, I had never been south of Philadelphia or north of Boston or west of New Jersey or something. Um, like I had gone camping once and like a porcupine walked by and that was it for like dangerous beasts or whatever. So I went there like prepared predators and risk of that and the local tribes people the messiah are fierce warriors and horrible diseases and i went there and as it turns out far and away the hardest thing is that like your toes itch all the time because you got some weird fungal thing or like there's always bugs in the food or like those terrifying maasai warriors or in fact, like hanging out in your camp all the time and anything you do is like ridiculous to them and you can't go pee in the bushes without them wanting to see like if you do it the same way they do. Mm. So I was like completely unprepared for what 
sort of the challenges were going to be. Now, um, speaking about your uh, experiences with researching and observing animals, you've spoken a lot about how humans are different from animals and there are ways in which we're practically the same, ways in which we do novel th- things in novel ways or ways in which I think you sometimes use this word we're more uniquier than they are. Um, overall, have you come to decide if humans are uniquier than animals? And if so, how, in what ways are we? Yeah, we're, um, we're definitely uniquier. That's, that's based, on, based derived from some quote of all species are unique. Some are just more unique than others. And we're the uniqueest of them all. Um, you know, two quick examples come to mind. One is when you look at the neurobiology of like compassion, responding to somebody else's pain, amazingly non-human primates show the rudiments of it, rodents show the rudiments of it, and like hard-nosed laboratory work. And it seems to involve the same part of the brain that it does in us, an area called the anterior cingulate. Wow, we're exactly the same except we can feel empathy for like, oh no, the poor Navi home tree has fallen down. And those are pixels. They're not real yet. We're caught up in that. We could do abstractions with that like no other species. The, the other way that we are unique is, is that a large percentage of social mammals could be divided into either their what call, what's called pair bonded species they mate for life. Males do a lot of child care. Females choose males who are good partners. There's not a whole lot of aggression or tournament species. Males are much bigger than females, have big, sharp canines, ornamentation. They fight tons. They do no chill. Like you can basically discover a new primate species and look at them for 10 seconds. And there's certain features that will instantly tell you which of those two categories they're in. And you know tons about their social lives. So what about humans by every measure you could come up with from cultural anthropology to literally what sort of genetic diseases we have? We're halfway in between. We're not a tournament species. We're not a pair bonded species. We're halfway in between. And this explains like 90% of poetry and divorces and stuff. We're incredibly confused species in that regard. And thus we invent cultures that are celibate and cultures that are polygamous and cultures that, so like we don't fit in that category. And obviously that makes us very unique. So I actually wanted to ask you about what you were doing just now, which is speak about science and these very complex uh, topics in a way that is easy to understand, but like not just easy. This is like a delight to sit here and listen to your voice and the (laughs) examples that you give. Um, And we've seen this in your other talks. You always kind of throw in some jokes and make it very, um, very accessible to basically anyone who wants to listen. Um, What what do you think uh, contributes to your ability to be able to do that? And what other skills could we maybe learn to maybe impart some kind of something like that to maybe impart, make it easier and more accessible for people to understand data and science? Um, sort of the, the most explicit level is sort of, I tend to think a lot in metaphors and I think that helps teaching a lot as long as you don't like take the metaphor too seriously. Um, I tend to gravitate towards things like the social or the political implications of some of the science stuff. Probably most useful though is for some reason I have a very, very clear memory from sort of my student days of exactly when I would get so bored in a lecture I would want to scream. So I think I've got a good internal pacemaker as to when like you have to shift the tone or else like people are out of there in mind if not in body. Now, um, 
you have recently written about the end of history illusion um and this was in the relation to uh, political administrations and for our listeners the end of history illusion was basically when how humans can easily recognize the changes we've gone through in the past but when asked about how we'll change in the future we won't really uh we don't think we will change that much and you spoke about that in relation to the political administration of trump and things like (laughs) that and so there's of course been a lot of controversy between president trump and science in general and i was wondering how do you what are your views to the danger of him to scientific integrity in general and uh, does this complacency, this end of history concept, play a role? Um, well, the what what you're referring to was uh, an LA Times op-ed thing that they ran, I think, on January 1st that I wrote somewhat out of despair at sort of the impending inauguration, talking about this end of history illusion. People have a lot of trouble imagining that whatever it is right now is going to change as much in the next 10 years as whatever it was 10 years ago. I mean, great stuff like you ask somebody 10 years ago, what was your favorite you know, group to listen to? And you figure it out. And what's the last time you listened to them? Like eight and a half years ago, how much would you pay to go to a concert of theirs? Like 25 cents, I agree them. What's your favorite group now? How much would you pay to go to a concert of theirs in 10 years? gazillion dollars because they're going to be so much more awesome than it's impossible to imagine that things are going to change at the same rate. Um, And that one I framed, and it's impossible to imagine that the present tense of political history that's about to cave in on our heads around January 20th is going to be as fleeting as everything else. And like, we have to not only not despair, but do everything possible to hasten the end of the political regime that was about to come in. Um, In that regard, I think basically if Donald Trump does not destroy the planet um, with some of his plans, he's certainly going to destroy research and science and biomedical work. I mean, the, the cuts that he's proposing, the hostility he has to things like global warming, the hostility that he has to fact, to cause and effect basically, I think, puts us all in great danger. But if you happen to be somebody who like traffics in truth and finding out new facts for a living, particularly so. Um, as a as a uh, observer of behavior, especially in groups, um, we were kind of wondering if you could maybe position yourself as an outside observer, uh, looking at maybe like the current political landscape, especially you mentioned about how the, the very hierarchical structure that you observe in baboons. Um, and we've also heard this kind of idea that Trump won because there were a bunch of people that were felt like they were being overlooked. They had no say. Maybe they were kind of at the bottom of the totem pole, so to speak. Um, if you could kind of position yourself as like a outside observer, what might you see um, in our like current like cultural and political landscape that maybe is reminiscent of something you've seen in your observations? Well, I mean, basically something as, as part of my field work, not only was there observational work, but I would also uh, dart anesthetize my baboons using a blowgun system. And there's a bunch of people in DC where I would love to put a big hefty dart in their rears and maybe like put in some ear tags in them and find out what's going on with their hormone levels. Um, you know, when you get to humans, though, that hierarchical stuff is like, go figure, it's complicated. It's complicated because we belong to multiple hierarchies at the same time. So you can have some guy who's got like the worst job in the corporation down there collecting the garbage. But this year, he's the captain of the company softball team. 
And you better bet which one he thinks is more important to his life. So we belong to multiple hierarchies. We do weird things like invent sheepishness about status or being embarrassed about the wealth we come from or things like that, where some of what we do is try to express the opposite of doing that. And for example, we wear jeans jeans cowboys used to wear jeans and somewhere in the 20th century it became cool for like middle class people to wear jeans hey i'm just in from rustling up the cows there on my way to like starbucks or whatever in inverse symbols there was this economist thorsten veblen who wrote about all sorts of interesting things about sort of conspicuous consumption the signs that the leisure class we've done inverses of it um the sort of thing say like in in faculty meetings, which when I first became faculty, like all I wanted to do was dart those people and take some of their samples and look at the hierarchical stuff. And you sit in a faculty meeting and without question, the person who is most involved, who's prepared for it the most, who's taking the most notes is basically the most subordinate faculty member in the room. And if you want to figure out who's like like the alpha in the whole room there, they're sitting there going through their mail, reading a newspaper, and every now and then looking up in order to make a sarcastic, funny comment, and then they go back to their reading. Whoa, that's a... No baboon would understand that, like reverse dominant stuff. And like, we're, we're complicated in that regard. So we do very weird things with hierarchy. Interesting. Um. Kind of to wrap up, the last question we usually ask is basically about what's your definition, personal definition of success. And so, and also things like, what advice would you give to students to defining success for themselves? Oh boy. Well, um, you've caught me at an interesting point of life for asking that in that, you know, in addition to the field work, sort of lab work nine months a year and lab of 25 people and NIH grants and doing sticking genes into neurons and all sorts of stuff like that. And about three years ago, I decided I had had enough research and closed my lab in order to just focus on my teaching and writing, which like if you ever talk to a lab scientist, the notion that they no longer have the lab um, is an enormous transition. Um, so in that context, advice, this I think is advice that's not suitable for most people, but at a place like this with really smart, really privileged people who are going to have all sorts of options down the line, um, I guess the clearest thing I wish I had had hammered into me more is get a really good sense, if you can, of what you're going to have to give up for your ambition. And <laughs> is it worth it? Thank you. That is that is an answer that we haven't had yet. So we really appreciate oh. that. <laughs> okay. um, and uh, thank you to all of our listeners out there. Um, remember to stay hungry.